The passage today comes from Luke chapter 24, and I'll read starting in verse 36. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And he gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. All right, so this is one of the resurrection stories in the Gospels. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, this is the very first time that Jesus shows himself before the disciples. And if you notice in the story, Luke, who's narrating this account, goes through great pains to establish that when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose to bodily life, to physical life, that he is no mere spirit, but that he's flesh and bones, that you could touch him, that you could handle him. So why this emphasis? Why this focus on the physicality of Jesus' resurrection? Two answers, and this is my basic outline. Number one, Jesus is confronting the doubts of the disciples. And then number two, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of what is to come. Okay, so number one, Jesus is confronting the doubts. And then number two, he's giving us a foretaste. All right, so let's go to number one. Jesus is confronting the doubts. Now, you really can't understand this story unless you appreciate that the disciples were completely and absolutely skeptical that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that they were filled with doubts. Look at uh, starting at verse 36. The story starts out where, where Luke writes, as the disciples were talking about these things. Now, what were these things? What were they talking about? You see, in the story, this is Easter Sunday. And that very morning, the women followers of Jesus went to the tomb because they wanted to care for Jesus' body. They wanted to, to, to care for his corpse. But when they got there, to their utter shock, the tomb was empty. And the body was not there. And then when they came out of the tomb, they saw Jesus. He was alive and well, no longer dead. And Jesus tells the women, go and tell my disciples what you have seen and heard. And so they rush back and they tell the male disciples. And the disciples are in complete confusion. They're puzzled. What are you talking about? And so Peter and John rush to the tomb and they want to see for themselves what has happened? And indeed, the tomb is empty. There's no body. But they don't see Jesus. And so they return back. And so the disciples are talking about what's going on. And they all conclude it can't possibly be that Jesus is no longer dead. Right? Yes, the tomb is empty. 
Yes, the women claim to have seen Jesus, but, you know, in their typical sexist way, they basically concluded, well, you know, they're kind of soft in the head. Who knows what they saw? And so you have to understand that Luke is setting up this really um, juicy irony in the story. The disciples are talking about the absolute impossibility that Jesus could possibly be alive. And at that very moment, Jesus appears before them. And how do they respond? Look at verse 37. But the disciples were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. You see, seeing Jesus was the absolute opposite thing that the disciples were expecting to see. When they actually saw Jesus, they were like, holy smokes, what's going on? And they immediately come up with an alternate theory, right? They say, we must be seeing not Jesus in his body, but we must be seeing a spirit. Another good translation is a ghost. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Now, I think this is a good moment to, take a, to pause and just to take a step back and to consider the story, right? Let's take an objective look at the story. Now, a lot of um, modern secularists, when they look at this story, they basically say, it can't possibly be that Jesus truly rose from the dead, right? Because we know that's impossible. No one rises from the dead. So how do we take into account this universal story of the Christians claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And they say, okay, this is, this is what must have happened. Ancient peoples are gullible. This is before the scientific revolution, right? So they didn't know any better. And so somewhere along the line, a story got started that Jesus rose from the dead. Like a rumor got started. And then people without any supporting evidence just completely swallowed the story. They just believed it. And then it somehow got worked into the Bible, and there you have it, this story of Jesus rising from the dead. Now, you know what's a major problem with that account? It is completely and utterly false when it comes to understanding ancient people. Right? There are tons of historical um, works that are looking at this period, and all the historians universally agree. This is not just Christian historians, okay? They all universally agree that ancient peoples, yes, they didn't know about the scientific method, but that doesn't mean they were idiots. They knew from long experience that once you died, you stayed dead. Right? That death was a one-way street. In fact, historians have looked through all the accounts of the ancient world, and you never find a single account or a claim that someone rose from the dead except in the Bible. In fact, you can even go to mythology. You can even go into the Greek myths. And you never even see in mythology anyone rise from the dead. Of course, um, you see, uh, of course, in the ancient world, they believed that there was life after death. But you lived on as a spirit, as a kind of ghost, as you know. But you didn't really have a body. And we know this is true because Paul, when he goes to the city of Athens... And he's sort of explaining the Christian message in the marketplace. Um, he gets to the point where he says, and Jesus rose from the dead. And at that point, the crowd 
stop him and they say, hold on, now we know you're crazy. Because, did you just say Jesus rose from the dead? That's absolute nonsense. We know that's impossible. And they, they refuse to let him finish. And so don't you realize, don't you see, that when the New Testament says Jesus rose from the dead, all the gospel writers are pleading with us, don't dismiss us, don't you see, we were just as skeptical as you, we were just as doubtful. It was only in the face of irrefutable, overwhelming evidence that we finally accepted the resurrection of Jesus. Right? There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Go and talk to them. You can ask them yourselves. There was the empty tomb. Now, some of you might say, oh, well, the disciples, what they did was they stole the body of Jesus out of the tomb so that it appears like he rose from the dead. Well, if that's the case, then the disciples knew for a fact that what they were saying was an absolute lie. And does it make sense that people would be willing to suffer persecution, to, to, to endure torment, and to ultimately die a brutal death for a lie, for what they knew to be a lie? If you don't believe in the resurrection, what is your explanation? What is your, what is your account? All right, so going back to the story, the disciples expressed doubt. And if you look at verse 39, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, look at my hands and feet. Touch me. Handle me. Can't you see that I am truly bodily risen from the dead? And then Jesus offers a second line of evidence. And I love this. Jesus says in verse 41, do you, have, do you guys have something to eat? And the disciples give him some broiled fish. Fish that's been grilled. Now, all the Bible commentators are really astonished at that little bit of detail, right? Because if this were a mere legend, if this were a mere kind of mythical story, why get to that level of specificity? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, why not just say, Jesus asked for some fish, and, I mean, Jesus asked for some food, and they gave him some food and he ate it. Why say Jesus ate barbecued fish? You know? And this is, all the commentators basically say that what must have happened is that when Jesus ate the piece of fish, the disciples must have watched in absolute stunned silence. Three days ago, Jesus had just been brutally killed on the cross, and now he's eating fish right before them. And that experience must have been so stunning, so vivid, that they forever remembered that detail. And that's why it's included. And so we see once again, right, that this is no mere legend. This is no mere myth. This is an eyewitness account. All right, so what's the point? What's the meaning? You see, the New Testament tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. And the gospel writers, when they wrote about that, they did not mean that the resurrection is some kind of metaphor for life after death. They didn't mean that Jesus continued to exist on some kind of spiritual plane, on some kind of, you know, spiritual level, that he continued to exist. They didn't mean that um, Jesus continued to live on in the hearts of believers as they remembered his life, as they remembered his great teachings. He lived on in their hearts. Because think about it. If the disciples meant that he lived on in their hearts, 
Why talk about grilled fish? Right? What does grilled fish have to do with living on in the heart? You see, what this story is doing is it's confronting us. It's forcing you to decide. Are the disciples telling the truth? Or are they lying? Because if the disciples are lying, then Christianity is a giant hoax. And the Bible is a completely fraudulent document. And therefore, the whole thing is garbage. The whole thing is worthless. But if the disciples were telling the truth, what does that mean? It means this, that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the divine Son of God. It means that what he said he did really happened. That when he resurrected from the dead, he defeated sin and death. He reversed the verdict of sin and death. You see, the Bible tells us that the great enemy of humanity is death. That death haunts us all. That death is like this predator crouching, waiting for us to become sick or frail, and then it pounces and it swallows us up. That death is the great separator. That death is the great enemy. But because Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death, he undid the power of death, and all those who are found in him will never taste the ultimate power, the ultimate consequences of death. That's the meaning. That's the, that's the purpose of the resurrection. All right, so to summarize, the first point, what does this story tell us? This story confronts us. It forces us to decide. You can't sort of sit on the fence. You can't waddle in the middle. You have to decide, is this true or is this false? No other choice. I wouldn't say. All right, point number two. The resurrection is a foretaste of what is to come. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the resurrection is the first fruit, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what is to come. And what he means is that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all Christians. Okay? What that means is that all Christians are looking forward to that great resurrection day in the future in which we will have bodily life, that we will have flesh and bones, that we will inhabit a physical, you know, tangible world. Now, this is really hard for us to believe, and I'm afraid there's an enormous amount of confusion out there in the world about what Christians believe, even among Christians. So many of us believe what I would call the Simpsons' vision of heaven. And in the Simpsons' vision of heaven, you die, and then you sort of rise up and float up out of your body, and you sort of leave behind this physical world. You leave behind your body, and you float up into the clouds, and you're sort of this airy spirit, this wispy, ethereal being, and you're up there playing the harp, right? And you're not physical. Uh, just this last week, I was visiting a church, and one of the worship songs, the lyrics went like this. 
This world is not our home. This world is not home. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that line. And to some degree, of course, it is true. This world, in its, in its sinfulness and its rebellion, is not our home. But it's such a sloppy and ambiguous statement because what does that mean, this world is not our home? Does it mean that this physical world is not our home? Is, is that the Christian hope? And this kind of pseudo-Christian idea of heaven has come under a lot of attack. A lot of um, modern seculars say uh, that this idea of this, you know, spiritual floaty heaven is really detrimental, right? And so I think um, what really captures that sentiment is a song by John Lennon. It's It's a little bit dated, but I think it still really embodies it. A song by John Lennon called Imagine. And let me read you the the lines. John Lennon says, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You see, what John Lennon is saying is, if we could only get rid of this idea of this cloudy, wispy heaven... And then if we only knew that this world is all that there is, then wouldn't we live for today? Wouldn't we be so engaged and so committed to making this world a better place? Right? Because it's this idea that why rearrange the furniture on the Titanic when you know the Titanic is going down, right? If we know this world, this physical world is just going to go away, why care? Why live for it? But is that the Christian hope? Is that what we're longing for? What happens at the very end of the Bible? At the very end of the story? Revelations chapter 20 and 21. Does the Bible say that we as Christians rise up to heaven, goodbye earth, float up into the skies, we're going to be these spiritual ethereal beings? Absolutely not. What does Revelation 20 say? It says, John saw a vision of heaven coming down to earth. And that when Jesus returns, there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That the great Christian hope and vision is a renewed and restored creation, a physical world. Do you see? The story in Luke gives us a hint of that, of what is to come. Jesus eats grilled fish, right? In his resurrection body, in his resurrection life, he eats grilled fish. Now, the Bible often speaks about eating and feasting and banqueting in the age to come. Is the Bible just being figurative? Or is there something more to it? You see, all of us have experienced you know, at some moments in this life, you know, sometimes when you're playing sports or maybe you're going on a hike on this great nature trail or maybe even um, at work, right? You're just like in zone. You're just like creatively juices flowing. And you, and you get this, this brilliant flash, this momentary flash of the absolute majesty and glory and beauty of this physical world. But it always fades, right? It never lasts. But in that momentary flash, we are getting a taste 
of what is to come, of the glorious creation to come. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. You see, the world is waiting with bated breath to be transformed like a caterpillar to a butterfly. The Bible tells us that this physical earth is like a seed planted in the ground and one day it will bloom. One day it will blossom and, and, and all the potentialities will explode. You see, Christianity doesn't think of the physical world as this kind of dirty, disease, you know, physical stuff. Yeah, you know, I can't wait till our body is gone. Yeah, right? It doesn't think of the physical world as defective. It thinks of the physical world as broken. And one day, God will mend the world. One day, God will restore the world. And do you see just how body positive and physical world positive Christianity is? I mean, think about it, right? If the Bible tells us that Jesus resurrected to bodily life. And what that means is that Jesus will have a human body for all of eternity, forever. Think about it. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Christianity is the wildest, craziest religion out there because it says that the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus, the Son of God, will have a human body forever. That we will relate to Jesus human to human, face to face. There is no other religion like Christianity. There is no other worldview that has this kind of positive view of the physical world. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we know exactly in specificity what this new creation world is going to be like. The Bible often talks about um, the new creation in really extravagant, hyperbolic, over-the-top language. But this much we know. We'll be eating. There'll be continuity. And so that's the storyline of the Bible, okay? Creation. Fall. Redemption. Restoration, renewal. That's the storyline of the Bible. Alright? Alright, so that's point number two. Now, let me give you some applications. How do we live in light of this truth? Let me give you three points of application. Application point number one. The resurrection makes us fearless. Imagine, uh, let's, let's just take, for argument's sake, that, uh, that John Lennon is right. That this world is all that we have. Does that make you care about this life? Sure, right? Because this is all that you have. But it doesn't allow you to sacrifice. It doesn't allow you to move towards danger, to risk your life in order to mend the world, to fix the world, right? But if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that one day we will be restored to bodily life, you can say, hey world, you can kill me. You can thrash my body. But one day, God will give it back to me. Do you see? Point number two. The resurrection makes us engaged. It makes us compassionate. The resurrection tells us that God cares about this world. 
that he longs for the renewal of this world, that it grieves God when he sees corruption, poverty, um, oppression, disease. And therefore, to the degree that we believe in the resurrection, to the degree that we uh, love God, we will long for the same things that God wants in our lives. And I think the best illustration of this is, um, a, uh, is, is, is a historical detail from the early church. Now, there's a writer uh, named Rodney Stark. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Washington. And he wrote this great book called The Rise of Christianity. Fantastic book. I highly recommend it if you want to read about the, um, the historical background of Christianity. And Rodney Stark is basically addressing this question. How is it that Christianity grew so fast in the ancient world? How is it that in just a few centuries, it overtook the entire Roman Empire? And in one particular chapter, he looks at this, um, he looks at one of the ideas that he has, and he says it has to do with the way Christians responded to epidemics. You see, the Roman Empire, particularly in the second and third century, was ravaged by a series of devastating epics of epidemics, of disease. Now, the Romans had no idea what caused these diseases, right? They didn't know that it you know, had to do with microbiology and germs. But this much they knew, that if you come in contact with someone who's sick, very good chance you will get sick too, and you may die. And so any time an epidemic would break out in the city, all the pagan elite and the pagan educated and the rich they would just flee the city. They would go, run to the countryside. In fact, everyone ran except one group. This is actually well, well documented. This isn't just Christians saying this. This is secular historians. This is undeniable historical fact that the Christians stayed behind. Why? The Christians would, you know, the Christians had no idea either how to fix this disease. But they would try to make the sick feel comfortable. They would give the sick food. They would give the sick water. And eventually, many people would recover from the illness. And among the survivors, a huge number of them would convert to Christianity. Even though the Christians would stay and many of them would die, many, many, many more people became Christians after each wave of an epidemic. And so Rodney Stark is looking at this and he's asking, why is it that the Christians stayed behind? And he says, the reason why is because the Christians said, God cares about the sick. God cares about the poor and the marginalized. And if God cares, we care too. And therefore, they stayed behind. And even though they knew there was a very good chance that they would die, they had this rock-solid confidence in the resurrection. And therefore, they were absolutely fearless. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that astonishing? To the degree that we believe in the resurrection, we will be the same. Let me offer you, finally, a third application. The resurrection makes us, gives us peace. As all of you know, um, Christina, my wife, is pregnant. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've sort of discovered about um, expecting a baby is just how nervous and anxious it makes you. I'm constantly afraid that I'm, I've hurt my baby boy. Um, this one time, just this past week, I sort of um, hugged Christina in a kind of a rough and sudden way. And then Christina said, um, 
watch out, you know, ow, that, that, that kind of hurt my belly. And for some reason, I started to freak out, right? Because I thought I hurt the baby. Because I imagined, right, that what if at that very moment, the baby had his arms extended and locked. And then all of a sudden, this overwhelming physical force came crashing down into the womb, and then his arms snapped and broke, right? And I started to, sorry, I started to freak out. Oh my gosh, I just broke the arms of my, of my baby. And, you know, maybe he's going to survive, and he's going to be born, and he's going to be born with these little gimpy arms, right? I started to freak out. And as I was thinking about Easter Sunday, and as I was thinking about this message on the resurrection, it gave me so much comfort, you know? Because even if my little boy is going to be born handicapped, he's not going to miss out on anything. You know why? Because the Bible tells us that those who are found in him will rise and they will be given a bodily, physical life in which they will miss out on nothing. He will be able to play basketball. He will be able to do everything and anything in the resurrected life. He won't miss out. And that was such a comfort to me. And that should be such a comfort to us that we are not missing out on anything. You should not have any regrets. You know, it allows you, don't you see, it frees you up to live a life of deprivation. It frees you up to take risks, to take chances, because you know that one day you will be resurrected and, and, and nothing will be missing out. You'll miss out on nothing. All right, let me, um, let me conclude with this one last final point, okay? Look at verse 39. Verse 39 is is really quite surprising. Jesus says, look at my hands and look at my feet. Isn't that kind of odd, right? Why doesn't Jesus say, look at my face? Look at my body? Why the hands and the feet? Now that by itself in isolation, we might say, oh, that's a bit of an oddity. I wonder what that means. But if you look at the Gospel of John, um, at another resurrection appearance story, in John chapter 20, the, um, the disciple Thomas expresses doubt about the, about the resurrection. And then Jesus says to Thomas, Stop your doubts, because behold the nail marks on my hands. Put your finger on the nail marks on my hands. You see, Jesus still bore on his resurrection body the scars of his death on the cross. Now, that is odd, and that is curious, and that is surprising. Why? Because the Bible tells us that in the resurrection, our lowly bodies will be restored to perfect, pristine, glorious health. And so, therefore, why does Jesus still have scars? Shouldn't the scars be gone? And here's the answer. The scars remind us, and they reminded the disciples, that Jesus was crucified on their behalf. The marks tell us that before there is resurrection, there was crucifixion. That in order for Jesus to defeat sin and death, he had to swallow death in our place. 
He had to endure the curse of the cross and of sin. You see, and in that sense, Jesus is fulfilling and has fulfilled the promise given in the Garden of Eden. Do you guys remember that promise? Adam and Eve has just partaken of the forbidden fruit. And God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, your rebellion will not be the last word. I will rescue you by giving you a son. And your son will have a son. And his son will have a son. And one day, a son will be born, the Messiah. And then he says to Satan, you will strike the Messiah's heel, but he will crush your head. And on the cross, Satan struck Jesus by nailing him to the cross. But Jesus crushed Satan and crushed sin and crushed death by rising from the dead. You see? So those two things together, crucifixion, resurrection, together is the gospel, is the great hope that we have. And to the degree that we believe it, to the degree that we rest in that, it will transform our lives and transform our hearts. Let's pray.